welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Josh. And I'm Chava. Thanks again so much for joining us. Chava, how are you? I'm pretty good in this uh, COVID world that's totally different now. Um, <laughs> hopefully going back to the office soon. Oh, wow. I know. It's a little scary. Yeah, we have like schedules and shifts to be able to be in the office alone at all times. It's a little sad, but I think I'm going to go in tomorrow. And you, Josh, how are you doing? I'm okay. I I wish summer would go on forever. A big change. My wife is teaching again, and you know, I have all kinds of uncertainty about uh, what school's going to look like. And so, yeah, lots of change about. I feel like we're in possibly a little calm before the storm. And I'm, like, kind of bummed about not having in-person high holidays. Yeah, me too, actually. And it's a little bit interesting because I just visited my parents and they're uh, modern Orthodox for those who don't already know. Um, and it was funny because my mom said you, that me and Adam are Dr. Adam going to be doing way more for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah this year than they will. I've kind of forbade them from going to synagogue or to any like minyan outside. Oh, and they won't do an electronic service. And they won't do a Zoom. So they're just going to be at home, kind of sad, and like eating good food. And we'll be here on Zoom. We go to Holy Blossom, which is a reform congregation. And they're doing everything online. My shul is doing like a bit of a hybrid. They're having something like 200 people in the building, though it's a building that can seat like over 4,000 people. I'm not going to go and I don't know that I'm really that supportive of there being anything in person right now, because I think the risk is still too high. We're going to do online, but like, to me, davening is like part of why I go, and I actually do enjoy davening. But it's also about like, sitting where I sit and seeing all the people I see. And, you know, there's like a physical experience from being there. The clergy is there and you see all of the traditions happening right in front of you and everyone's doing it together. I feel like it's just very different to be there. You know, another hat that I wear besides like Star Trek podcaster is synagogue lay leader. And I'm actually very worried about the future of synagogues in North America after COVID. I feel like pretty lucky in that the shul that I'm active in, Betsetic in Toronto, has like a very supportive community and also diligent financials that will allow them to weather the storm. Mm-hmm. But I think that like a lot of synagogues are going to be going out of business this year and next year because synagogues that rely on high holiday ticket memberships are not selling them when people are only getting online or at least not in the same numbers and synagogues like mine that don't sell high holiday tickets but rely on like membership drives that happen around the high holidays Mm -hmm. um, i've been hearing from lots of colleagues that synagogues are facing like record (laughs) non-renewals i think our guest from last month dan liebenson of judaism unbound probably would make the argument that like the legacy non-orthodox synagogues built in the 1950s in their you know behemoth cathedrals were probably on their way out uh, anyway. Um, but if they are, I definitely mourn that loss because <laughs> I don't see what's ready to replace them yet. I mean, I, this must be a huge problem for all communities right now. If most of their revenue comes in from just having events where they gather people together, but it's also super important. So I hope places don't all just close down. Yeah. And like beyond the issue of revenue, it's like synagogues aren't just about people who are paying their memberships. It's like a community of people who are held together by doing Jewish together. Mm-hmm. And the longer we go without being able to do that, I, you know, I feel those bonds, maybe not breaking down, but definitely under siege. And, and that's even like, despite the fact that I think my shul has been like, really, really good in the transformation to digital service delivery. But like, that doesn't cut it, even if they were perfect in it, I don't think it would cut it because in-person is something that can't really be replicated. It's like gold-pressed latinum. (laughs) Exactly. It's exactly what it's like. So we watched some Star Trek this month. Did we? We were kind of all over the place, weren't we? From first season of the original series all the way into Discovery. Mm -hmm. This month we looked at a couple of episodes that I think all were connected to 
the nature of good and evil, some playing on things about like free will and destiny and how those connect to good and evil. So to kind of like lay theoretical framework for that, maybe we should go to our Reb Alert interview. Sounds good to me. So this month we sat down once again with returning guest Rabbi Jennifer Gorman. Rabbi Jennifer Gorman is the executive director of Merkaz Canada and the executive director of the Canadian Foundation for Mizorti Judaism. And she's a wonderful source of Torah and, as I think our past listeners know, a very serious Trekkie. So welcome back to the show, Rabbi Jen Gorman. Belay that order, number one. Red alert. Welcome to Rebel Alert. We are here with Rabbi Jennifer Gorman, who was on our episode about Jews in space, and she's kindly agreed to join us to discuss evil in Judaism. Hi, Rabbi Jennifer. Hi. Glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. It's, uh, I'm excited to talk about this topic. Let's get started with just a very broad question. What is Yetzer Hara? The Yetzer Hara comes from a biblical verse. When God created human beings, the word yetzer, meaning to create, has two yuds in it in the Torah. Normally, it only has one yud. And so it gets interpreted that we have two yetzers, two inclinations or two ways we were created. The yetzer hara is always translated as the evil inclination, and the yetzer hatov is translated as the good inclination. And I hate those translations, but there's no better English word for them. So the yetzer hara is, I like to call it like Freud's id. It's the pleasure-seeking principle. It's the stuff that leads us to do things that might be considered bad, but also things like getting a good job because you want to make a good salary or building a nice house or getting married or anything that's kind of in that pleasure-seeking world, not all of which is clearly evil. Right. Can't see getting married or maybe, I guess it depends what kind of house, but buying a house is being evil. But it is something that's pleasurable and something that people desire. And so it comes from that pleasure-seeking peace. The way I always imagined Yetzer Hara is like that little good angel and bad angel that's standing on your shoulders. In Bugs Bunny. That is perfect. <laughs> what does Judaism say about the origin and the purpose of evil? It's not so easy. One of the problems that this particular topic always has is there's no one way to talk about it. Some things in Judaism are very easy. Can you eat pork? No. <laughs> very simple. What is evil? What is the purpose of evil? That's a whole other can of beans. There are different opinions. One possibility that comes up that we sometimes see in Torah is the purpose of evil can be a punishment. One purpose is a test of faith. Think of the book of Job, which is not a popular book in Judaism. It's not one that we read publicly. For some, and I'm more in this category, it's the ultimate price for free will. And it can be any of these things. One of the reasons I love talking about this topic is there's no one definition. It's not like we have a doctrine where we can say, this is what Judaism says. So if you look at Rashi, or you look at Rambam, or you look at the Katsker Rebbe, a Hasidic Rebbe from much later, everyone's got their own opinion about where we are and why evil exists. Mm -hmm. I think until you hit the Middle Ages, Evil simply a given. It exists in this world. People act a certain way. There's no concept of original sin that we hear about in Christian culture, in Judaism. It just is. It's the way the world is. When I think about evil, I think of a lot of the traditional biblical characters. And the, mm -hmm. the first two that I think of are Cain and Abel, um, showing us the first human-on-human -human evil behavior. Yeah. So what do you think about other depictions of evil characters in the Bible, such as Asav or Lavan, Pharaoh, maybe? Human-on-human <laughs> -human evil, that's the easiest thing to explain. If we're going to have ultimate free will, if we can put ourselves out there to run into a burning building to save someone. If we can produce ultimate acts of love and kindness, then we also, in order to have free will, have to be able to produce ultimate acts of evil, whether it's biblically like Amalek or whether it's modern like Hitler or Pol Pot. That's got to be the trade-off. 
someone like Esav, Esav is a little different. Esav gets interpreted as evil, and I think he gets a really bum rap in the in the Bible. <laughs> That's true. He's good to his dad, right? <laughs> he's very good to his dad. I don't think he's so bad to his brother either. I think it's more, he reacts like a human. Mm-hmm. He gets angry, he gets upset, he gets over it, he misses his brother, he comes back. You know, most of the evil stuff we see is interpretation that gets superimposed on the text. It sort of sounds like a lot of the evil inclination, or Yesehara, that's poorly translated to that, is just sort of human behaviors that are completely normal. So why exactly is it considered so bad to kind of give in to that? So I'm going to quote my mother-in-law here. She's a Jewish educator, now retired, Marion Gorman, quote her in her name. In describing this to her students, she used to say, you could have an inclination to stick a knife into another person. Now that sounds really awful. And you could become a serial killer. That's a choice. But you could also become a brilliant surgeon and spend your life saving people. It's not so much the giving into the inclination that's seen as really bad, but how we give into the inclination and how often we give into our evil inclinations. Judaism comes from a point of view more of moderation in everything. Mm -hmm. So that includes moderation in how we give into these pleasure-seeking principles, as well as how we give into the the good side. What do we do with the good side? Because if all we ever do is that good piece. We're not going to get married. We're not going to have children. We're not going to seek to move up in our careers and attain a goal. Without that yetzer hara, if we only have the yetzer hatov, then we never move forward. We just kind of stay where we are. And it's not seen as positive to just do that either. We need moderation in that too. That's where we get the phrase, if you don't have flour, you're not going to have Torah. You're not going to have learning. You need both. You need a balance. Can I throw a bit of a wrench in that? Yes. When I think about like good and evil as like competing, do the right thing or do the wrong thing, what should I do? It works on a certain level, but doesn't quite match up to like maybe some of the historical or lived experiences of evil that we encounter. So like two examples that I'd think of, one is Hannah Arendt's description of Eichmann, like a banality of evil, where he's like a a middle manager pushing pencils and follows his way into committing genocide. No mustache twirling. And similarly, well, I don't want to say similarly. In the same vein of that banality, I think of our collective inaction against the climate crisis, where it's not that any one of us set out to like, I'm going to destroy the world today, but rather our plural acceptance of systems slowly worsening the situation and poisoning the planet around us. How does that model fit into this idea of like two inclinations and are they reconcilable? For some people, they'll be reconcilable. For others, they won't. Such a heavy philosophical topic, sometimes there will be people who just say, I'm never going to completely understand it or reconcile, but I have to live with it. Especially when we're talking about religion, that's an important piece. Not that we shouldn't question, but we have to understand sometimes we won't be able to reconcile. But even when you're discussing those two pieces, there's been a lot of crime committed under, I was just following orders, or I followed the letter of the law, and we have an obligation to think about what our orders are. I've spent now 23 years married to the military in the U.S., and there are obligations that people take on to not just follow orders It's not okay just because something's legal to just do it. And I think that's a piece there. In terms of the climate crisis, we're back to the idea of choice. There's a lot of little things that people can do every day. And many of us throw up our hands and say, well, if I stop using plastic wrap, my little piece of plastic wrap is not going to make a big difference in the climate crisis. And that's true. It seems most of what goes on is corporate, and we need big picture changes. We know that. But it's up to every single one of us to work on, how do I react to it? I will make the changes I can 
where I can, and then I will write letters, I will protest, I will encourage government to change laws, I will do whatever I can in order to have an effect on the greater picture. Now, that being said, not everyone can take on every issue. And I don't want to at the same time shame someone who, especially now, feels perhaps buried under what we're just dealing with with COVID and say, I cannot get myself up. I hate what's going on and I want to be involved in a protest or I want to be involved in something, but I'm so beaten down by current circumstances. That also happens. And that's not necessarily evil. It's not good, but there are those things in life that don't fall into a binary category of good and evil. Kind of building off of that, I guess we'll talk about Star Trek a little bit. Sounds good. We watched the original series episode, The Enemy Within, as part of our Hebrew school homework. Mm. And in this episode, Kirk gets split by a transport error into an evil Kirk and a good Kirk. What you just said about being passive about the climate crisis, and I, I agree that everybody has to pick their fight that they're going to fight, and especially in COVID, that's very difficult to do. But what that made me think of is actually how Kirk's good guy character, while not evil, really, was very passive in a way that was quite dangerous. And that could maybe be construed as a little bit evil. Yeah. One of the problems, I think, goes back to that, if there's no flower, if there's no work, there's no learning, when we only focus on one thing, or when we try and do only good, we can get buried in it. Mm -hmm. One of the things I remember from that episode was Spock, I think it was in his personal log, explaining that the captain was having a harder and harder time making decisions. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to be only good and you're looking at the picture and you see well, if I do this, it's going to lead me down this path. If I do that, it leads me down that path. And then there's this other path over here. And how do I choose? And you worry about every single ending to only do good. You really are paralyzed. Mm -hmm. You go down, well, I can't do that because that leads me down this road that takes me to this one thing that makes my blood boil or I, I disagree with. It can be anywhere on the spectrum. So I'm not going to act at all. Instead of saying, I have to act, I can't always consider the far down consequences, which is how we get into trouble a lot. It's not so simple. We have a whole range of stuff. We still have to act. In the moment, we have to say, what am I doing? I can't only look at what will happen. I can't look at all of the possibilities. I have to act right now in this moment to do what I think is the best thing to do. Not necessarily the good thing or the bad thing or whatever, the best thing to do in this moment. Because that's how a starship captain or any leader has to act in this moment. What makes the most sense for our mission, our people, our universe. Mm -hmm. Going back to Star Trek, in the original series, the two episodes we watched for today, in some ways offer us different models of the relationship between good and evil. In The Enemy Within, good and evil are discrete characteristics that could exist within a person. And so, you know, we see Kirk divided into the calm and indecisive Kirk and the sweaty, aggressive, violent Kirk. <laughs> In Mirror Mirror, it seems that way at first, and yet as the episode unfolds, we see that the goateed Spock has the same capacity for logic and empathy on the other side as he does on ours, or the prime one, I, I can't really say for sure in 2020 if we're living in the Mirror Universe or not. <laughs> and that the goateed Spock, he has within him the same positive drives as the prime one, which would suggest that, you know, good and evil don't come from the nature of the person, but the nature of the circumstances. What does Judaism have to say about that? Are good and evil something that come out of people inherently or out of the circumstances that they navigate their lives through? Can I pick all of the above? Looking back at Torah, there was a big debate about Noah. The Torah calls Noah Ish Sadiq, Adoratav, that Noah is a righteous man in his generation. And the commentaries go crazy over this. Does that mean he's a righteous man? Does that mean he's only a righteous man compared to the rest of his community? What does it mean to be a righteous man? God communicates with him. Does God communicate with people who aren't righteous? They go crazy. And there's no one answer. 
we're kind of in both places. We have to do what's right within the moment. And sometimes we're going to find out that's wrong. We've made a lot of mistakes. A lot of them, we as human beings, um, a lot of them environmental. We started talking about climate crisis in the 60s and 70s. DDT was a huge thing. They said, okay, we're going to get rid of mosquitoes. They cause malaria. Uh, Israel, when Israel was founded and JNF was set up, they planted eucalyptus trees in order to soak up the swamps because of malaria and illness. And they thought they were doing the right thing. And then they discovered, oh, that was a terrible idea. Dry the wetlands. (laughs) Yes, very bad idea. But they were making decisions based in the moment, trying to make the desert bloom, right? Mm -hmm. But in the moment, we can only know what we know right at that time. The bearded Spock acts as he does because that's the world he lives in. But yeah, as R. Kirk, I guess I'll call him, as R. Kirk talks to him and shows him there could be a different way, things start to change. And certainly by the time you get to Deep Space Nine, the mirror universe, you see changes happening, right? There's still a focus that people are going to act badly, as it were, because that's where the script needs to go. And there's a focus more on power and pleasure and accumulating wealth without the ethical piece. I think that ends up being what changes the mirror universe from our universe. But there are always people working there, working behind the scenes, maybe inspired by that bearded Spock to do the right thing, as it were. I also think that evil's not a thing. It's not a thing in and of itself. It's in Sadia Gaon's words, Sadia Gaon was a, a commentator around the ninth century and did a lot of work on the prayer book and the Sidor, but also talked a little about this. He looked and he said, evil is the absence of good. And so if we can change the situation, if we can change what's going on, what people see, then there's a promise. If change is inevitable, predictable, beneficial, doesn't logic demand that you be a part of it? One man cannot summon the future. But one man can change the present. Be the captain of this enterprise, Mr. Spock. Find a logical reason for sparing the Hawkins and make it stick. Captain Kirk, I shall consider it. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jen, uh, for joining us. If our speakers want to find you, how can they, how can they do that? They can find me at www.mercaz, that's M-E-R-C-A-Z dot C-A, the website from my organization, Mercaz Canada. I can usually be emailed or call the office and you can track me down. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. This month, we watched the episode The Enemy Within, which is a season one, episode six, I think, of the original series. Depends Um, how you count. Yeah, it depends how you count. I wrote like season one, episode six, question mark. (laughs) And I just want to put in a content warning here because there are themes of sexual assault in this episode and we will be discussing sexual assault as well. So if these are topics that will bring you discomfort, I'm just putting in a trigger warning for that. If you'd like to skip this discussion, you can jump ahead to around the 28-minute mark. So what did you think of this episode, Chava? The Enemy Within? Yeah. This was the episode that made me really think about Yetzer Hara, which is the evil inclination that we discussed with Rabbi Jen. Mm-hmm. It was the one that made me say, okay, Josh, we should do this Yetzer Hara episode. It's a terrible episode, I think. Maybe I just say that about all the original series episodes, but <laughs> maybe it's because of the assault in it. Kirk is split into two different people because of a transporter malfunction, obviously. One of the Kirks is <laughs> evil, and the other one is good. More than just plain evil and good, it sort of shows what characteristics come from evil Kirk and what characteristics come from good Kirk. It really goes into examining what the role of good and evil are on the ship, and as well as just like in leadership roles. Good Kirk can't make decisions because he's not really assertive, because that's like something that evil Kirk does. 
I like some of the themes, but I just think that it's a really cringy episode. What do you think, Josh? I think I'm on the same page as you. This episode opens up opportunities for philosophical conversations about the nature of good and evil and about free will. And it's like a really interesting sort of morality play to examine that. Mm -hmm. But the execution of it is in some places like really horrific. Yeah. Definitely. Why don't we start with the big tough one about this episode, which is the way that it handles sexual assault. One of the main things that Evil Kirk does is he gets off the transporter and he sees Yeoman Janice and decides that he's going to kind of hide in her quarters and wait for her. And when she comes in, he forces himself on her. She resists. It's a gruesome scene and she scratches him on the face and this is one of the important scenes because it lays the imagery difference between good kirk and bad kirk because you see this bad kirk with this huge scratch on his face mm-hmm. i think the first time i watched it i didn't really think about it that much and then when we rewatched it this time i was like man yeah this episode is really unpleasant because of this scene in particular yeah and i think they make it worse in a couple of places for sure in the episode and in real life right after the assault the assault like shouldn't have been depicted that way but she's the good guy there and evil kirk is evil but then the next scene you have mccoy and spock almost like interrogating her and putting her in the room with Kirk and they don't know about this two Kirk situation yet. And it's like, that's how they are handling this assault by putting her in a room with the accused who's her captain. There's like a weird power dynamic. They're sort of like leaning over her. Totally. Yeah. It's like they put her directly in the he he said, she said position. Really egregiously. The episode ends on like a slide whistle with Spock making a joke to Rand about the fact that Kirk had attacked her, which, I mean, first of all, like, totally misunderstands the nature of Spock. This is not the Spock we know, but again, like, it it just seems so, so awful here. Yeah. I think the really painful part about this is that Grace Lee Whitney, who portrayed uh, Yeoman Rand, she's written about in her autobiography how she was violently sexually assaulted by an executive involved in Star Trek who she has never named, and that less than a month after that occurred, she was written off of the show. Man, that's, that's horrible. Yeah. (sighs) So... Maybe turning towards some of the episode concepts that are thought-provoking. Well, first things first, Evil Kirk clearly had eyeliner on. So much makeup. So much makeup. Like, highlighter and eyeliner. Is eyeliner evil? I didn't realize that that, I don't know, it just made him look really strange. Yeah, he's like smirking, feral, sweaty. He looks like an animal, yeah. And it, like, the depiction of evil is that it's, like, violent and quick to anger, sexually deviant. Alcoholic. Oh, right. But they also portray him as, like, having the strength that good Kirk lacks. Yeah. Um, And that's, I think, something that's also discussed in terms of Yetzer Hara, where it's normal for every person to have that inclination to do bad things or to do evil good here. It's pleasant, but also like a little bit stupid and forgetful, cowardly. His indecisiveness is causing the away team to be in grave danger unnecessarily. And McCoy says a couple of times that the good Kirk, who they all treat as like the authentic Kirk, the good one, but like in a sense, the nature of this accident would suggest to us that they're like equally authentic, Mm -hmm. that he's lost his strength of will. And after the unicorn dog dies, which I can't believe, first of all, that their alien dog was just a regular little puppy with a with a <laughs> unicorn on its head, and and also that they kill the dog. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, that's really funny. You know, the point that they're trying to make 
and and they they ring this uh, metaphorical bell pretty loudly is that like he can't survive with just the good he needs both halves to be whole and the you know the science fiction there is in support of this morality tale which this episode is hard to place within like the so-called canon of Star Trek where it's not like a series of things that happen that totally make sense and is cohesive with the rest of the series this this is a morality play about ideas of good and evil mm-hmm. i also think it's important to note though that like the good kirk does show compassion and love and tenderness mm-hmm. they really kind of made him out to be this weakling character but that it, it is essential that kirk have those qualities just because i mean look at evil kirk there's maybe like a dangerous message in the two halves piece the message might be that it's kirk's negative side which makes him strong and that if your evil side is properly controlled and disciplined it's the key to your to your like strength and and greatness like i think that's what the good kirk is missing is like the ability to be like the the great hero who can save the the crew on the planet that none of the other people on the bridge who haven't been split into seem to be able to do and that if like the negative side is removed from you the power to command escapes Definitely, I think that lines up with some of our Jewish ideas of Yetzer Hara, um, especially when like Rabbi Gorman described it as like Freud's id, like those like base impulses. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's like a proper model of human behavior. You don't Um, think that? (laughs) No. And it also, you know, it reinforces ideas of like toxic masculinity yeah. and like you need to like like have this darkness within you that you can unleash for your greatness like i i don't know i i think i kind of call bullshit on that whole construct yeah it alludes to men being the only ones capable of being leaders for sure mm-hmm. just based on the characteristic that they've chosen to enhance an evil kirk should we talk about data lore yeah i like data lore yeah I, I really like this episode. Yeah, I guess I like all data episodes mostly. Data Lore is season one, episode 12 of The Next Generation. And this is where they find Data's evil twin, basically, who is called Lore. Get it? Data <laughs> Lore. <laughs> yeah, so it's all about why Lore is evil and his different characteristics. And they also go into a little bit, I think, concepts of humanity as well. Something that they play on is that lore is much more human than data, but is also super crazy evil. So are those two connected? Do they come hand in hand? Being more human means inclination to be evil. What do you think? Hmm. Like the way they portray good and evil here is pretty different from how it comes out in The Enemy Within. Data's goodness is like a childlike wonder. Mm -hmm. I guess there's sort of two kinds of evil that are portrayed here because you have the evil of lore that is like, again, with like the smirking and conniving and the twitch, which thus demonstrates him to be evil. Yeah. But there's also like the terrifying, incomprehensible evil that lurks in the crystalline entity, which is this like Lovecraftian terror that can descend upon a colony and like vaporize everything down there for its food. A very different kind of evil than we've been we've been getting before. Something that I think the early inconsistent next gen episodes get really right is that they make space like vast and terrifying mm-hmm. and and like truly venturing into the unknown in a way that like when it's like late TNG and you like know where everyone is and it's lots of bumpy headed aliens and you're like invested in the geopolitics, it kind of loses that. And and Star Trek has like maybe never really gotten that back. Hmm, interesting. Maybe they'll get that with Discovery this coming season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I agree that the crystalline entity is evil though. Because, I mean, it's just eating, right? I don't know that it in itself is acting in an evil manner, because you're right that it might be like an animal or something. But it is this, like, terrible force of destruction that is descending down on people. Right. Kind of like us on the planet. (laughs) It's got kind of a, like a Hebrew Bible terror to it, too, you know, wiping things out and implementing its punishment, or it's almost like a, like an angel of death. 
It's the flood. And like the angel of death, like an angel in Judaism does not have free will and thus cannot be evil. It is an instrument of destruction. Yeah. But I think truly the most evil person in this is definitely Lore, because he's the one that's trying to unleash this crystalline entity, mm-hmm. which is such a strange entity as well. Like, wh- what is it? How is it rotating in space? Just, I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah, this episode had some, like, hilarious season one-ness to it. Yeah. like How about when Jordy, like, finds the Scooby-Doo trapdoor into Noonie and Soong's lab? <laughs> yeah. True. I do like Laura's twitch. I feel like that's like the eyeliner for Kirk. And much like the episode Brothers and the other ones where Laura shows up again, Brent Spiner is having a lot, a lot, a lot of fun here. Oh, yeah. And like, he gets to smile a lot, which is something that Data doesn't really do very much. And he's just wreaking havoc on the ship. Early Data is not like late Data, is he? They take him in some directions that get dropped, like talking about him having all of the records of the colonists Oh yeah, is something that they hardly ever bring up again. The only times they bring it up again are when they're really talking about Data's past. So it's the episode where they meet the Crystalline Entity again, and the episode where they meet Juliana Tanner, who's Data's mother, maybe. Right. They really show him grow over the series, because here he really does seem super innocent and childlike. He changes. In some ways, he regresses. Like, early Data seems a lot more emotive than late Data. He's more, like, preposterous in his curiosity. He seems to, like, get more, like, enthusiastic about whatever project he's got with Jordy and Wesley, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's true. Maybe lore changes him. (laughs) How about how everyone treats Wesley in this episode? Like, bad? (laughs) (laughs) this gives us the famous shut up wesley i mean i know everyone hates wesley but i actually like wesley i like wesley too really yeah oh good the way that they write wesley is terrible like they never treat him like a teenager he's like doogie hauser in space he's like a little like boy genius yeah all the times after will wheaton left the show that he comes back he's great like when he's when he's in the one where everyone's addicted to their um, oh, their yeah. Google Glass game, <laughs> he's got a girlfriend and he's moody. And then uh, the one where he covers up the death of his classmate with an off-brand Tom Paris, like <laughs> he's like holding in secrets and in conflict with Picard. Like ultimately, they needed to treat Wesley. A little bit more like Jake Sisko, where he's not just like this perpetual child who does the adult job, but like when he's a kid, make him a kid, show him growing over time. Like Jake Sisko, he needs to grow into like a little man, which I guess Wesley did do when they bring him back after he's left the show. But as a series regular, we didn't get a whole lot from him. He just sort of filled the role of whatever they wanted. And I I do adore Will Wheaton. Oh, yeah. What else did you like about this episode? You said it was one you enjoyed. I love Lore. I think that he's really interesting and adds a lot to the show. But I don't really understand Lore. Like, why is he so evil? Mm -hmm. Is he just jealous? Is he pissed off about something? He's more human, apparently. Why Why would he want all of the colonists to die? It just seems very... Yeah, his motivation is really unclear, which I guess the logical leap is, is therefore that it's like a flaw in his programming. Yeah. But I don't think that's such a great model of evil that it's like something inherent distorted in him. Like he is like the evil version of Data. So that feels like a little imprecise to me. Yeah. It seems like he's capable of telling right from wrong. Yeah. Right. So he like knows how to imitate Data. He knows how to get away with things uh, like fly under the radar as a good person. If he's just for fun, I get that. But I kind of feel like he lacks a bit of motivation. Mm-hmm. Another like sort of weird thing in this episode too is... Um, the way Laura is sort of like casually discarded. Data, from when we first meet him to the very last time we see him, been on this quest to find others who are like him. And in his first encounter with one, they like beam him into space and let him float away and assume that that <laughs> resolves their problem. I, I don't get that. I think he's really for fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it definitely achieved that. One thing that I think kind of connects this episode to The Enemy Within is like the foolishness of good. 
And that comes through both in Data's childlike wonder, but also mm-hmm. the fact that all of the bridge crew are just being total, total idiots. And if they would just, like, shut up Picard, shut up Dr. Crusher, if they would just be quiet and listen for one second, nobody would have been in danger here. It's true. That is kind of interesting. So why don't we talk about the Mirror Universe now? Yeah. So we watched two Mirror Universe episodes, the original Mirror Mirror, and one from the most recent arc of the Mirror Universe, which was on Discovery. Are you are you a fan of the Mirror Universe, like in general? I think it's funny. I don't particularly love Mirror Universe episodes. Mm-hmm. They just seem a little unrealistic to me. I think it works really well once in a while. And like, it's a great place to have fun with it. The actors are all sort of wearing a mask. And so like a lot of like, great acting and performances can come out. I don't mm-hmm. like the way that Discovery has really centered it. I think we'll talk about that more when we get to Despite Yourself. But even mm-hmm. like in the later Deep Space Nine ones, it really rubbed me the wrong way. It just felt like, ugh, here we go again. It's another kitschy, they get to play bad instead of good episode. You know that nothing of consequence is going to happen to any of the characters mm-hmm. because it's the Mirror Universe. Except in Discovery, obviously, where they really went with it. But So what do you think of Mirror Mirror? I thought it was very funny because Spock comes on with his goatee. This is the origin of the like goatee equals evil trope, isn't it? I I mean, it must be. <laughs> like whether it's like Bender on Futurama or evil Abed, it's all going back to, to evil goateed Spock, who's really yeah. not quite so evil, is he? No, and it, that's kind of interesting because you can really reason with him. Mm-hmm. He's much more like Spock than evil Kirk is like Kirk or D- Lore is like Data. It's sort of like the situation has just put them in this place where they're all super okay with evil. Once again here, the evil that we're seeing is like a chaotic evil. People like assassinate each other to get ahead in rank. Evil here is like violent, but also very fascistic. Like they have a really strict authority structure and mm-hmm. death or pain for those who uh, who stray from it. I thought it was interesting how it's easier for good to pass as evil than for evil to pass as good. Mm -hmm. Like Kirk and and company, they kind of like spot right away that something's off and that they need to play along. But uh, but their counterparts are like spotted in one second by by our prime Spock, who realizes that like, no, I'm not putting up with with any of your crap here. You're going right to the brig. Right, and and that is the case, I think, for pretty much all of the Mirror Universe episodes. Ah, but with one great exception from the Mirror Universe passing as Prime. Which one? Lorca. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Evil here, again, is also, like, sexually deviant. Sulu kind of attacks Uhura. Yeah, and he's got this, like, big scar on his face, too. He's, like, scar in Lion King. (laughs) And the Hulkans, they seem like... They're the same on both sides because, like, they have the same pacifist philosophy in the Prime Universe and the Mirror one. That's kind of interesting. So, like, what happened in the Federation that made it different? I think what Mirror Mirror is trying to tell us is that, and this might be very different from what Discovery says about the Mirror Universe, that the Mirror Universe is different because of different choices and structures, but not anything innate to the people themselves. Mm-hmm, definitely. Mirror Spock, he totally can be reasoned with, and he, we talked about this a little bit in the interview, but like he has the same capacity for logic and arguably for ethics as like the prime Spock. Maybe this episode is saying to us that the nature of evil is situational. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think it's super true, because how could you just be like innately evil unless you're evil, Kirk? The Mirror Universe brings up, if we think about it, not just as like a one-off here, but like as a thing that exists within Star Trek, it brings up a really difficult question. And maybe we can start talking about despite yourself here, because Lorca actually like points this out to Burnham, which is that like the existence of the mirror universe is like a very profound statement on the nature of destiny and free will. Mm-hmm. Amazing, isn't it? Different universe. Somehow the same people had a way to find each other. The strongest argument I've ever seen for the existence of destiny. Not only is it about destiny, but it's the the free will aspect to it is really 
um, evident because it just sort of shows that perhaps a few decisions really altered the universe and that those people that made those decisions had the free will to make them. And that's a little bit scary Yeah, because I think it's definitely true in our world that we have a few people that can make very big decisions, alter the course of our civilization. Yeah. Philip Roth wrote a book like about 15 years ago called The Plot Against America. He sets out a really reasonable, realistic dystopia where America leans into fascism during the Second World War, which is that Charles Lindbergh, who was like the de facto head of the America First movement, a a fascist sympathizing anti-Semitic movement that wanted to keep the United States out of World War II, and which to be frank, like the modern Trump movement draws a lot of its inspirations. The novel like shows him becoming the president of the United States and it leading to not a Holocaust in America, but a different vision of America going down a very, very dark path. I think that there's some things about the mirror universe that kind of wrecked season one of Discovery for me. Like what? Well, I thought that Lorca was such an interesting character, like him being battle-scarred by having to sacrifice the crew of the Baran, and him just being, like, cartoonishly evil, I I felt like sort of robbed it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't like the dynamic that they set up between him and the Mirror Burnham, who we never see. There was just a lot of ick to it. And fundamentally, like... Again, that problem of destiny doesn't really gel with me. (laughs) Yeah, because it definitely goes against your own self-determination. I'm going to do some like armchair theology here. (laughs) (laughs) I've said on the show that I don't know whether or not God exists. And I would also say that like, I don't know whether or not free will exists. Because if you break down our behaviors into the psychology and then the biology and the chemistry and the physics of it, like I I can see a compelling argument that we are just like machines playing ourselves out and that the illusion of consciousness is part of that machine. I don't believe that. I mean, as a chemist, just so you know. (laughs) But I guess I would say that I think that if free will does exist, it like maybe necessitates the requirement of God, like maybe free will requires an ashama, a soul, something that is like independent of that machine and can break free of that. And that inherently, because it's not from the physical, would have to be divine. But you're a PhD in quantum chemistry, so maybe if you say it is possible, I should just go with you instead of uh, instead of uh, my armchair theology. <laughs> I mean... Uh, nothing that I can think of precludes the possibility of a neshama. The episode, Despite Yourself, made me think a little bit about the way the Hebrew Bible portrays theodicy, like the explanation for evil in the world. And the Hebrew Bible has like a really hard time with it. Like in the ancient world, when, or at least in the ancient Near East, when a nation was defeated, typically they saw it as like a defeat of their gods and the defeated Mm -hmm. people took on the gods of their enemies who like clearly had defeated their gods clearly to them. And the Hebrew Bible flips this on its head. The Deuteronomistic historian, the the author, or really like the school of authors (laughs) of judges, Samuel, Kings, maybe Joshua, They take this and they flip it upside down and they say that the transcendent God of Israel made your enemies his instrument. And because you, Israel, broke with the covenant, you are being punished. Right. Turns it into like sin related. Yeah. When the Deuteronomistic historian is presented with a place where it doesn't work, they find a creative way around it. So like a problem they run into all the time is bad kings having good lives and good kings having bad lives. So these books of like sort of like the early prophets, they love King Josiah because he like cracked down on non-centralized altars and repaired the temple. They hate King Manasseh who uh, undid some of the religious reforms of his father and allowed Avadazara, uh, idol worship and worship of Baal and, and Asher 
Bashara. And so they say that like when Josiah has a terrible death, it's because he's being punished for the sins of his grandfather, King Manasseh. Right. And I don't think that really lines up with the way like, certainly like medieval Jewish thought characterized evil. Although... You know, the the rabbis of the Talmud certainly thought that God had made Rome God's instrument and that the destruction of the temple had nothing to do with Israel's politics and everything to do with Israel breaking the covenant. Which I honestly think is very traumatic to a lot of people. Uh, I don't know, at least I think so. Assuming that any trauma that's happened to your family or anything that's bad that happens to you is because you've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. That's just so bad. (laughs) And like origin of Jewish guilt. I don't know. I I just don't like that. And notably, you will not find anyone in the Jewish mainstream applying this like theodicy approach to modern traumas like the Holocaust. I mean, maybe in some like very fringe and frankly, I find extremely offensive elements of the orthodox world you'll you'll see like some crackpot rabbi (laughs) popping up saying the holocaust was punishment for reform judaism or covid (laughs) punishment for the pride parade in tel aviv and and like like screw that totally yeah even in most orthodox circles that is well outside of the the mainstream i do think there is some lack of understanding of those those types of events though like why and this is where i also kind of have a real bone to pick with season one of discovery there's a reveal towards the end of the season that there are biological differences between prime humans and mirror terrans and that being their sensitivity to light right yeah First of all, I don't even see how that served the story, except that it paid off kind of this mystery box they wrapped around Lorca's eyes. The original explanation for which was perfectly fine, which was that he witnessed a blinding flash of light that coincided with like the death of his crew, which to me was like so much more powerful than like, he's secretly one of the goatee people. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. We see another portrayal of good and evil distinctiveness in this episode, which is within Tyler. Right, yeah. I should say also that um, this episode was very heavily criticized for the scene in which Culber is killed by Tyler, specifically for fitting into tropes of like the so-called barrier gaze trope, which is where, you know, when a show has relatively few gay characters that they're often the first to be killed off. Um, the same is also true of black characters. Hugh Culber is played by Wilson Cruz, who has Afro-Puerto Rican ancestry. And I think that between when this episode was made and when it came out, they realized that they had made a little bit of a boo-boo here. And so mm-hmm. right on the heels of it airing, they made this huge announcement that he was not actually dead and that like dead doesn't really mean dead in Star Trek. And of course they like bring him back in the next season. But I don't think from the way they killed him that that was always set up. And it it seemed like they were setting Stamets up to be damaged and traumatized by this death. And, And so I guess I'm glad that they worked their way out of that hole. Yeah, me too. But I don't really find it like authentic that it was always the plan because the way they get him back doesn't fit well into season two and um, undoes some of the like dramatic tension of the first season. So Tyler and Vok, what do we learn about good and evil from them? He's traumatized. It's sort of like he has this evil self underneath his good exterior, but the evil self isn't really evil either. And... He just is a very complicated character. I don't really see him as evil or good. I guess I kind of see him as good. I think Tyler's good. Yeah, Tyler definitely is good. I I think, like, Vok, he sees himself as the hero of his own narrative. Within this episode, I think Vok does stand for evil, which is that he's, like, the monster from within. And they use some, like, horror symbolism, like Tyler looking down at his bloody hands or, like, getting flashes of his past life. And it's this, like demon within him there was almost like a little bit of um like a christiany like the devil made me do it which i should say christianity borrows from like first century apocalyptic jewish writings so it does sort of come out of the jewish tradition albeit a jewish tradition that hit a dead end in the greek period and like does not 
exist in contemporary normative Judaism. I think that I definitely see him as like an evil type of character. And I see what you're saying about that, like Volk. But I also think that by showing all those flashbacks and everything, it's kind of trying to show that he's not... Like, it shows him uh, being intimate with Laurel. Although it it kind of portrays it as an assault at some points. It does, but it also portrays it as, like, consensual at some points. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's not it's not obvious. Like, he's trying to figure out who he is, but yeah, I don't know. Season one of Discovery, like, every time they put these interesting traumas forward, they kind of dig out of them, because, like, we think we have the traumatized Lorca and its mirror. We think we have POW, possibly sexually assaulted Tyler, and it turns out he's Vok. And that one must have been planned, because it's, you know, the same actor, and they had the whole, like fake made-up actor who they said was playing Vok. This episode also has a reference to The Defiant. You haven't seen Enterprise, right? No, I haven't. Okay, this episode makes one quick jab at, like, the coolest canon ball of yarn there is, which is that I'm gonna need a minute. (laughs) In season three of the original series, there is an episode called The Tholian Web, where they find this uh, this the sister ship of the Enterprise, a Constitution-class starship called the Defiant that is, like, phasing in and out of reality and eventually disappears and the crew go mad and kill each other. Okay, then season four of Enterprise, which is 100 years before the original series, they, they do these two episodes. They're really fun right at the end. I think they already knew the show was being canceled and they were just going, like, like balls to the walls with, like, fan service. The episode is set entirely within the mirror universe they have a lot of fun with it they show us the mirror universe version of first contact with the vulcans and they take footage from the film first contact and do some like sneaky edits to make like a mirror version of it cool it has like the mirror versions of the nx enterprise crew finding this ship which oh it turns out it was sent back in time 100 years into the mirror universe um and they take it over and it like you know all turn on each other and eventually it like leads to the creation of the Terran Empire as we know it in Mirror Mirror. So for like one quick second in Despite Yourself, they make reference to this ship. They're like, oh, we found documents saying the Defiant is here and like, how does that make sense? Isn't it patrolling sector or whatever? And I thought that there was going to be great payoff to that. Uh, like, why would you why would you put it in there if you were not going to use it? And I, I kind of thought that they were going to have, like, a big TOS romp and that they would do, like, what Enterprise did. In Enterprise, they were extremely diligent in the way they portrayed the ship, like the uniforms and the panels. Like, it looks like it's right out of the 60s. And I thought this was going to be their moment of being like, aha, here's all that stuff. It exists here, too. The Enterprise ones end with, with a crew member who they, they reference in season one of Discovery, Hoshi Sato, proclaiming herself Empress because she has this advanced ship from the future. I thought that would have been the perfect base for the Empress. <laughs> like, they've already referenced it. You know that the story requires <laughs> the Empress to show up at some point. And so I was kind of let down by that. Yeah, so yet again, like, season one Discovery bites off something interesting and... <laughs> kind of deliver something that is like passable but doesn't really fulfill what they originally set up. So I'm taking it that you are disappointed with season one Discovery. It was like interesting and I'm not a Discovery hater. What's great about Discovery is that the characters are so, so good and interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm like really invested in them, but I feel like they never pay off the promise of the premise. That always lets me down. I'm curious what they're going to do this coming season. Mm-hmm. Actually, Adam and I watched the trailer yesterday. I do have a sneaking suspicion about something. Oh, yeah? We saw a Trill character. Um, oh, yeah. And we saw somebody lying uh, floating in a pool of some kind. So I wonder if we might be getting a Dax. <gasps> wow. Whoa, that would be so cool. I'd be really into that. I am really into DS9. I'm still going through it because I'm watching with Adam. We're pretty slow and we're nearing the end of season five. Oh, shit, it's about to get real. <laughs> I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> you know what I actually found the other day, Josh, is your prediction about Picard that you left in our apartment in a little drawer. What did I write? Hold on. I don't even know. I'm going to go get it. <laughs> 
I never opened it because I wanted to open it with you. <laughs> what did I write? You wrote, all Romulans are ancient synths, like skin job Cylons in Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been really cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> and then you wrote, 9 February 2020, and you signed, you initialed it, Jay-Z. Uh, wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would have been a really good direction to go, but uh, I guess Michael Shabon didn't get my note. <laughs> <laughs> Would that be like your dream to write on the show? Uh, I think that I should be the special advisor for the really Jewy episode of Lower Decks and that you should do it with me. <laughs> so if any <laughs> okay. of you are listening and happen to be involved in the production of Lower Decks, uh, I'll do whatever it takes. and You don't have to pay <laughs> me anything or I'll work for scale if you need to, you know, satisfy a union requirement or whatever. But uh, Lower Decks should have a Jewish character. We saw the seat guy with the turban, and we would like a turn, please. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of one other thing about the portrayal of evil in Despite Yourself. Yeah? That it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. <laughs> like Killy and all the gold lamay, and there, there is an element of, like, evil is a little bit just for fun. <laughs> yeah, like the agonizers, those just seem like for the pleasure of everyone else. <laughs> and the crew themselves seem to have watched Mirror Mirror. <laughs> because <laughs> Yes, they... someone tries to kill Michael. <laughs> <laughs> they, the Discovery crew catch on right away that they're in the Mirror Universe. Like, they figure it out in about three lines of exposition. <laughs> and they cosplay it up right away. They know exactly what to do. I think in another episode, they even call it the mirror universe, which like Star Trek had never done before. That was just like a fan term for it. And and Burnham tells Tilly, like, Terrans don't apologize at a point at which she has never met a Terran. She's only like read about <laughs> it in a Tellarite Klingon whatever log. <laughs> so yeah, they've all obviously all watched the original series. So Josh. Yeah. Do you have an Afikoman? Oh, I do have an Afikoman. Okay, lay it on me. It actually ties really nicely into something we are going to be talking about next month. So let's roll the clip. But the point of this is whether you and it have approximately the same capabilities. We do, sir. And you're referring to him as it. Suggests that I too fit into the category of a thing. Oh, yeah, I, I see your point. My apologies. Gladly accepted, sir. So Data just um, very lightly admonished Picard for misgendering lore. And Picard's human. People make mistakes. And sometimes we get people's gender pronouns wrong. That's something that like happens when people make casual errors. And I really liked the way Picard handled this. Um, I'm a synagogue lay leader and uh, my shul just prior to the pandemic, brought in an organization called Keshet, which is a Jewish LGBTQ organization. And one of the things that they do is, I guess, like sort of a sensitivity training for synagogue volunteers and staff. And one of the things we learned was that like, if you misgender a person, um, which does happen from time to time, you shouldn't go and Picard doesn't like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad. And I have lots of trans friends and I promise to do it, to <laughs> never do it again. Like Picard just says uh, that he's sorry and then quickly um, moves on. <laughs> That's the right way to do it. If somebody tells you that you've used gender pronouns uh, inappropriately, learn from your mistake, quickly apologize, apply the correct pronoun and move on with your conversation. Because when you do the whole like song and dance of like, I'm so, so, so sorry, you end up just like putting even more pressure on this person who you have misgendered. You're forcing them into the spotlight just because of your own error in speaking. And uh, it's not a very nice thing to do. Basically force them to console you. <laughs> Good job, Data, for um, standing up for the, the dignity of every person by uh, allowing them to have the appropriate gender pronouns that fit their expression and identity. And good job, Picard, for even if you got it wrong the first time, just like making a quick apology and moving on. Afikoman. <laughs> Chava, did you find an Afikoman? I did. The two Mirror Universe episodes really reminded me of 
uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, which are these two hellish places in the Bible that God eventually destroys. And in these two places, they're considered to be very cruel, most specifically to guests, which is considered really evil in the Bible, or rather, um, it's considered good to be nice to guests. And by evil to guests, what I mean is that they were demanding of Lot that he allow them to uh, sexually assault the angels that were visiting Lot to tell him Sodom was going to be destroyed. Basically, this mirror universe is sort of similar to that, because just the feeling nobody's having a good time there, it's sort of like these angels are a little bit like the, the characters from the regular universe that are coming in and experiencing this crazy environment. Can I afikomen your afikomen? You can afikomen my afikomen. The Hebrew Bible says nothing about homosexuality being the sin of Sodom, but rather it's, like you said, it's it's rape and being unkind to strangers. But like later traditions, uh, both Jewish and Christian, uh, unfortunately take that as a condemnation of homosexuality, totally missing the point of the story. And similarly... Mirror, mirror. I mean, it was the 60s. They didn't really put any gay stuff on TV. But I do think it is disappointing how later Star Trek traditions, specifically Deep Space Nine, but also to a certain extent Discovery, associate bisexuality with the mirror universe uh, in a way that I think feeds into really negative tropes about like bi people being sneaky and devious and whatnot. Really? I don't think I've ever picked that up in any of the DS9 episodes so far. Oh, with Kira, the intendant. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Good point. That's a good afikomen to my afikomen. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please go ahead and give us uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts. It'll take you like five seconds, and it's super, super helpful for us. We'd appreciate it a lot. Your Hebrew School homework for next month is the Next Generation episode, The Outcast, Deep Space Nine Facets, and Enterprise Cogenitor. Thank you so much to our guest, Rabbi Jen Gorman. Our opening fanfare was arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Our end music is Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you so much for listening in Shana Uh...